Mark Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Oxbow Partners. Anyone listening to this podcast over the past couple of years can't have failed to notice the way that Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG, has moved quite quickly to very close to the top of the industry agenda. Taking into consideration the environmental, social and governance impacts of all of our customers, all of our investments, all of our suppliers, and all of our own activities, is something that may be a little too much for many of us in the industry to get our heads around. But it's going to permeate everything. Once regulators get involved, and it's only a matter of time before they do, ESG will become the biggest potential existential threat to insurers since the implementation of Solvency 2. That's why it's important to seek expert advice. And that's why I'm delighted to introduce Mick Dardversi, a principal at Oxbow Partners. Oxbow is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. And Mick Dard focuses on insurance, reinsurance and ESG and sustainability and has authored a first-of-its-kind report on ESG in conjunction with the Bermuda Business Development Agency, the BDA. This podcast lays out his credentials as well as the scale of the problem. If you have been too scared to even start thinking about what to do about the enormous ESG challenge ahead, this is an excellent place to begin. Mick Dard is smart, eloquent and passionate on this topic. He's also very optimistic that the insurance sector has the skills to navigate ESG's threats, as well as to be able to make the most of the huge opportunities that this is going to throw up. This podcast is also full to the brim of useful information and easy-to-follow advice. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market. And developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Mick Dub, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start by introducing ourselves. Tell us a bit about Oxbow. Tell us a bit about ESG. Let's sort of get some definitions out just for anybody who doesn't know yet what it is, who, you know, I don't know what they've been doing for the last two years. They don't know what it is. But tell us a bit about you and Oxbow and the work you've been doing. I am the head of ESG at Oxford Partners. We are a management consultancy specialised in insurance. We look at strategy, operations, tech, and M&A in private equity, and we work across different areas as you'd expect a consultancy to do, but our specialism is in insurance. When it comes to ESG, most people will be aware that E stands for environment, S for social, G for governance, and it's about understanding together what these mean for the insurance industry. Some people try and think about this in a very restricted sense. They try and think about ESG as a very specific risk factor. To what extent is someone who has these ESG criteria well covered within their business, how does that impact their risk to the insurer? That's a more restricted look at it. And then there are people who look more broadly about how ESG is almost another word for sustainability or another word for trying to make the world a better place. And so people have different understandings of what we're trying to achieve through ESG. And to some extent, some of these elements were being done for ages. When it comes to governance, this is a core part of running a business, and that's been there for a long time. 
and when it comes to certain elements of the S side of the world, the social side of the world, some of this corporate social responsibility that used to happen in the past feeds into what S is. So I think ESG really wraps this all up. And given how the United Nations has sort of promoted some of these elements six, seven years ago, probably more than that, actually, that's how this has come and, and it's become something important across financial services and in insurance now in particular. You're saying it's, it's really like a core thing for everybody. And just a reminder, E is for environmental, S is for social, and G is for governance. So it's, it's all encapsulating. You hinted there straight away that some insurance companies are probably looking at this at the risk of the people that they insure and how they deal with that. But actually, you're saying they should probably think about this more holistically, because of course, the people who insure will probably want to insure with people who are ESG compliant. I think that's exactly right. And the reason why it's sometimes useful to think more broadly is because of the key stakeholders that insurers have. Insurers and reinsurers will have investors, you have employees, you have the regulator, you have your actual clients, you have activists. Every one of these stakeholders matters to differing extents for differing parts of the insurance ecosystem. And so depending on who your key stakeholders are will drive a lot of why you're doing what you're doing and what you want to achieve through the ESG work that you're doing. And that's where a recognition that not everyone thinks in the exact same way is really important. And when it comes to pension funds investing, those people will be thinking probably differently to your head of risk and their approach on how they want to get the best out of ESG. So it's not just whether you insure people who run coal mines, it's also whether people who run investment funds can actually buy your shares because have you disclosed enough about how you deal with those people who insure coal mines and how you measure them and how you believe that they're on a transition and all that kind of stuff. One thing I want to ask is, we always talk about E, and it's really obvious with E, with environment, with net zero, global warming. It's such a big topic. It's everywhere. And S, also, we talk about a huge amount with all the advancements or otherwise in diversity and inclusion initiatives and obviously corporate social responsibility initiatives that you mentioned before. But G, we underestimating the G part of this because this is going to be about things like disclosure, isn't it? Disclosure is a big part of it, but also how do you govern your business as a whole? which, to be honest, is quite well regulated. Because obviously we've got conduct regulators, we've got supervisors, we've got prudential regulators, but you're talking about something much bigger than this. Exactly. So I think that is regulated well and is a big part of it. But there's also how do you want to govern yourselves when it comes to ESG? There's a specific element which is additional to what you may otherwise have been doing. And that could include, do you have certain committees in place? ESG committees, sustainability committees. How do you ensure that the sustainability or ESG work that you're doing is embedded in the business rather than siloed away differently? How do you ensure that, for example, the compensation of your executives is actually linked to the work that happens to ensure that you can achieve the targets you want and you can have a top-down strategic approach to ESG rather than a bottom-up ad hoc tactical approach to ESG? So these types of questions and challenges depend on how you choose to govern this part of the work that you do. And I think that's the additional element over and above the core governance, which is really important for any insurer in any jurisdiction. Obviously, you've done a lot of work on this already. I mean, most notably, there's a report you did in conjunction with the Bermuda Business Development Agency, the BDA, focusing on ESG governance issues in Bermuda. You did a pretty deep survey and a deep dive with a lot of people on the island and one of the stats that came out of that that I thought was interesting was that the market is viewing currently ESG more as an opportunity than a threat. Are they underestimating some of the downsides to this? I think that we are all optimistic people in general. I think that there is a, an element of let's try and find the best of the situation. How can we find great opportunity in what we're doing? What we see here 
when it comes to opportunity is multifaceted. It's not just about opportunities in terms of products and, and new opportunities when it comes to ensuring the transition, which is definitely there. It's not just about ensuring renewables and expanding the space to give it greater opportunities to, to go into renewables. And it's not just about thinking about disaster protection or disaster relief protection or disaster relief finance. You know, these types of ensuring the transition in different ways are definitely opportunities that people are thinking about. But I think the opportunity is broader than that. I think that when you start thinking about ESG and how, as an insurer, you want to retain the best talent and keep the best talent in, what a lot of people have realized is that a lot of new employees are asking questions and are interested in the sustainability of the business. And if you can demonstrate yourself to be someone who cares about more than just the very top line, but more than that, for some employees, that's something that will attract the right talent to the business. And there's a really good opportunity to get really good people in. It could be an opportunity in investment. By demonstrating that you think about certain activities, you may be able to get a lower cost of capital for some of your work because investors are looking for social return as well as financial return in some spaces. So there's a lot of opportunity across the different parts of ESG, which people are looking at and considering. But you're right, it's more than that. And there are going to be challenges, there are going to be risks, there are going to be threats that need to be thought through and certain things which will end up becoming hygiene factors that you have to be able to understand certain things about your portfolio, whether it's your investment portfolio, your underwriting portfolio, or your own operations business in terms of the impact on the environment that you're involved in. So definitely there's a lot of work that needs to happen in this space. Who wouldn't want a lower cost of capital and the pick of all the best employees in the business? There was another snippet from your report was very interesting talking about the drivers of this, because of course we think it might be all top-down things like, you know, regulators and the UN and people who have to do things about things. But actually, but it's a lot of bottom-up driving that there was a huge driver of employees. I don't know what percentage, it was about 80% of all the people surveyed, all the companies in Bermuda surveyed, were saying, well, actually, it's not just us, it's our staff that are driving this. They're saying, what are you doing about the E, the S, and the G? I found that really, really interesting. Why don't we just take stock? Obviously, you've done all this work. What do you feel is the current state of readiness of the industry? Are we sort of way behind or are we way ahead or are we sort of in the Goldilocks position of being just about right at the moment? I think it depends on the scale of the business. So some of the biggest insurers out there are really innovating, finding new opportunities, really finding the best way of thinking about ESG in the most effective way and developing new methodologies, new approaches. The top end are thinking about how can we understand how every single customer or every single client that we have, what is the implied temperature rise if they remain on their current transition plan that they are right now? You know, they can get to that level or they're moving towards getting to that level of understanding of every single client and then their portfolio and then them as a business. How close are they to net zero? What are the things that are driving them? You know, that's where some of the people at the top end are thinking. They're looking also at the human rights abuses of companies who they're procuring from. You see a lot of different, really interesting ideas from the top end. But then you have obviously smaller companies where resource is a bigger challenge, where actually they haven't done much at all. So what I'd say is that there is a big, big, big variety and variance between different people's readiness on ESG-related matters. And I'd say that as a whole everyone's going through this transition or in an early part of their journey rather than necessarily being a very well-developed strategy. And I think that there's a lot of pressure right now to try and move that early state thinking into something a bit more developed, which has happened. And we've been very fortunate, actually, when we've spoken to people, we've almost seen their development. So, you know, there've been some people who we spoke to last year and then we speak to them this year and the 
journey that has happened over the last 12 months is astonishing. They've now hired someone who's dedicated to ESG. They've got committees which they set up. They've created a governance structure. They haven't necessarily moved that far in terms of actually output yet, but they've created the structures to be able to do that. And I think that that is where approximately getting to, which is where people are starting to understand what they have to do and are thinking about now what they're going to do about it. But there are some, some people who are still behind and still don't even know what they want to do. Say you bump into someone in the street tomorrow who hasn't really done anything yet, who asks you, hey, I heard the podcast, you're the ESG specialist. What would you advise them to do first? Obviously, at the moment, we haven't got any top-down rules and regulations yet. I expect they're coming. What should someone be doing first? Is it just recognising that they need to do something is the first step? I'd say acknowledging there's a problem is always step number one. (laughs) But the very next thing is actually recognising they're probably doing a lot of this stuff already. So one of the things that is always about documenting what you're currently doing. And we try and encourage anyone who we work with to do that process themselves and understand from the whole of their business, look at all this really cool stuff that we're already doing. And actually, this is all really interesting stuff that has happened because an employee here found this is a really good idea and and, and has started doing something. The underwriters within the energy sector were saying, oh, I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen in the future. Let me try and work out how we can diversify a little bit because I'm worried about my job in 10 years time. Like, There's a lot of different people who will be doing really interesting things and collating all of that together in and of itself is a huge value to start off with. But I think the next step after really recognizing what you're doing is thinking about it in a coherent way, which can then start bringing the senior management on board. Because for any part of work that any insurer wants to do, You don't want this to be a tactical, bottom-up, ad hoc piece of work that people are doing. What you want is it to be aligned with the strategic thinking of the senior leadership. And in order to do that, what you want to do is to say, look, we've been doing all of these various things across this framework. These are the different things that we're doing. We think there are gaps in these spaces, and we think that these are the things that we should be doing. Here are the opportunities. Here are the priorities. And we think this is the thing to do. What do you think as a senior leadership? And it could either come that way or the senior leadership promoting it. But understanding what the ambition is, because there are going to be some insurers whose ambition will be, we want to be the front end of this. We want ESG to be something that we're known for. We want to be top quartile and be recognized as the leader. That is a group of insurers who are probably the biggest ones, who have the resource, who have worked in this space for a long time. But there are going to be a lot who are in that middle category who are like, you know what, we want to be in that second quarter and be at the front. We want to be doing what's required. We want to be proactive. We don't want to be tick boxing. But what we want to do is do what's right. And we want to think about it. We want to be thoughtful about the approach that we take in this space. But we don't want to be leaders. We don't want to be at the front end here and attracting concerns from people and then having activists knocking on our front door. That's not what our goal is. Our goal here is to do what's right, to be thoughtful about it to engage with the right people in that process. Maybe be more of a follower. They probably would never want to sell the idea of being a follower. It doesn't sound very exciting. Everyone's a leader in our market, of course. But they just don't have the resource quite. But they certainly are ahead of the idea that, that one, they need to be compliant with a future problem. In terms of time frame, obviously, I covered something like the implementation of Solvency 2, which was about a decade-long conversation. And then finally, it was something that really was happening and that was being implemented. And it was amazing how many people still have their head in the sand even weeks before the deadline. But what sort of time frame do you think we're talking about before we get a common framework for all of this? Because for one, I presume you agree that a common framework is what is going to be required for this to be effective at an industry-wide level. So something particularly that is implanted through the industry, through the buyers of insurance, through the doers of insurance, and through 
those investing in insurance and obviously everybody that insurers invested along the way, we need a common framework, one. And two, how long do you think it's going to be before we actually get one or competing ones? It's always a good idea for there to be common framework and collaboration to make sure that what needs to happen is agreed by everyone. Entirely agree. But I think it's going to be different in different spaces. So in the investment side, it's likely to be very different because you've got an EU taxonomy, which has laid out six different areas that need to be thought through. And, you know, they've got Article 8, Article 9, the light green and dark green type funds, which are there. There's certain elements which are happening on an international level. You've got the principles for responsible investment from the United Nations, which, again, lays out certain important ways of thinking about investment in a very, very clear way. You've got the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So there are these frameworks and ways of thinking about investment which are relatively well developed and to some extent are already being used quite effectively. The challenges on the investment side, however, are how do you define something which is ultimately very sustainable? And the controversies surrounding that have caused their own issues, whether that is more recently a whole load of investment moving away from Article 8 funds to more Article 9 funds that came out a few weeks ago. Can you just explain the difference to that? There are these different levels of what they call light green and dark green alignment to the EU taxonomy. So to see how green something is. How green something is, exactly. And the, the challenges with all of these things are there's a lot of gray category, right? Let me use a different example, the S&P Sustainability Index. Earlier in the year, Tesla was not considered to be within that top list. Um, wow. as because you'd assume it would be, right? And that was more probably because of the social challenges and the working practices and other things that were there. But ExxonMobil, as a fossil producer, was because of their transition plan and all the work they're doing across different areas. And so when these things are discussed, there are trade-offs to be had. And there are people who will say, actually, that's right. ExxonMobil should be in the sustainability index because they're working really hard to improve X, Y, and Z, and Tesla shouldn't be. And so how do you define what is a really good sustainable fund so that someone who is looking for investment in that space, who is willing to give up financial return, who wants to have a real social impact and say, you know what, this fund is something that's going to do that. And that is going to happen through the market, I think. But when we start seeing how funds are moving from one fund to another and people are recognizing what is sustainable and what's not, I think this is going to happen in the next few years quite well through the market. I think on the insurance side, it's slightly more challenging because it's a bit more opaque. I mean, on the reinsurance side, for example, it's very difficult. They don't have direct line of sight necessarily to everything in a treaty. They can't see the ins and outs of what's happening and understand. But so that doesn't also absolve them of any responsibility in this space, but it's a more difficult space to navigate. And similarly, on the insurance side, how do you understand the ESG credentials of your insureds? The framework that you may have might be a very simple framework. The principles of sustainable insurance, the PSI talks about these really, really quite well in terms of the types of things that matter when it comes to thinking about sustainable insurance. But at the same time, ultimately, you need to understand who you're insuring and how do you get that right information to yourself. It's all about the data that you have. And you can have external data and you can have internal data directly from those clients. How can you validate any of these things? At the moment, external data sources whose coverage in the underwriting book is limited, especially when they're private companies there. So what do you do about that? What do you do when there are two sustainability indexes which aren't even correlated together? You know, how do you deal with these types of challenges? So I think on the insurance side, it's not necessarily a framework that's necessarily the biggest challenge. It's things like a lack of data, which is driving a challenge to what to do. How do you deal with that? And how do you ensure that you can do the right thing and think about things more effectively? And this is where 
those who are more ahead are not using that as an excuse. The lack of data, which I think will get resolved through time, there's more disclosure that comes out. The bigger insurers are actually finding a way around it. They're saying, you know what, I know there's not that much data in this space, but what we're going to do is use the data we have. We're going to use certain proxies. We're going to create a methodology that recognizes where people are right now, understands the transition likelihood, and then see what that means for us in terms of our own ambitions. And spin it down, which jurisdictions do you think are going to be the first to be imposing some sort of ESG norms throughout the insurance sector? Is it EU? It's often EU. We'd think of EU first. I think the EU is definitely ahead in this space in terms of both the regulation and also the forward-thinking nature of some of the ideas that are being put forward. Whether it's the EU taxonomy that's there, whether it's some of the thoughts that are happening on some of the new SFDR expectations, there are definitely areas. And SFDR? The Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. Excellent. So you think it's going to be the EU? I think the EU are definitely ahead in this space and there aren't other jurisdictions. I mean, the UK being very similar. I mean, a lot of the work that's happening at the EU level is mirrored here in the UK. So I wouldn't necessarily keep them as massively separate despite Brexit. But when it comes to the US, I think they're not as forward in terms of regulation. But at the same time, some of the stuff that the SEC is coming out with in terms of expecting companies of certain size to disclose their scope one, two, and three emissions is actually really interesting and actually will move the dial forward a lot in terms of the emissions data that will be available. So I think there's definitely good movement happening across the world, but I think the EU is definitely amongst the leaders. There's another constituency here, which we often refer to unofficially as the de facto regulator of the industry, is the rating agencies. What are they doing on this? Do you think they might end up becoming the driver? So I think each of the rating agencies is developing an approach which can most effectively work with their constituents. And you can see how they're working slightly differently. For example, S&P have their sustainability index. They've got certain ways of understanding and assessing sustainability. Moody's are thinking about it, I think, in a slightly different way. But what I would say is that from an investment perspective, their ratings are definitely playing a role in laying out what's happening. But you also have a lot of these ESG data providers, which weren't historically seen in this space, but MSCI or Sustainalytics or other ESG rating providers who are starting to say, based on certain public data and or disclosures that have come from these individuals to us or are in the public space, we are going to, against a set of questions that we ourselves have created, judge and assess each individual company and put a rating out. And I think that the challenge with all of these different rating tools is how are they making those judgments? How come they do not seem to be correlated with one another? And what happens to the so many companies who haven't responded to them and suddenly have really varied ratings? I've spoken to many companies, for example, who initially had a very poor MSCI, for example, rating, then engaged with MSCI and said X, Y, and Z, and suddenly their rating shot up. And part of that is just because of the way that these rating agencies work and the specific disclosures they're expecting compared to what others are expecting. And so there is a big challenge here as to how do you ensure these ESG ratings are actually fair, given the lack of disclosures that are there right now. If if it was based on public disclosures, you could say, this is the basis and it's clear. Because it's a little bit more opaque, it's harder to be very clear. And that's why we've seen the news in the last few weeks, discussions that there may be some regulation of these rating agencies on ESG that may be coming up in the near future. 
there is regulation of racing agencies by the SEC. It's voluntary, but you know, if you want to be taken seriously as a rating agency in the insurance or bond space, then of course it does help to be in that program. This sounds like a lot of technologies needed to be invested in. It's going to be this other element. Obviously, you invest in all your underwriting systems and other things, policy management, etc. But now we're going to have another factor sitting on someone's screen, on an underwriter's screen, one hopes or one understands, and that's going to have to permeate and be aggregatable and movable, and then they'll have to be transmitted onto your reinsurer, and that your investors are going to want to have a quick look at it as well, etc. Is technology going to be a really big part of this, or is it just going to be another horrendous IT headache? I think anyone who is looking to redo their tech or data or system architecture would not be doing their job properly if they don't think about ESG data. There's some more plumbing forward. for the ESG pipe that's going to have to come in as exactly well, Exactly right? right. There are lots of these ESG scores and stuff out there. And the people who are at the front of the industry are taking everything that they possibly can and looking at all the different ratings and plumbing them all together and assessing them all and, and laying them all out to the underwriters so that they can make an, a judgment appropriately. I think that other people are struggling and trying to just say, okay, on an individual basis, I'm going to look up against a table and do it on a more manual basis. So I think that those who want to be the most forward thinking, when they have the dashboards of their investment portfolios, the dashboards or summaries of their underwriting portfolios, they're going to have to understand the ESG of these portfolios, of these sectors, of these individual clients. And it's going to have to be plumbed in in some way. So it's definitely something they'll have to think about. And the methodology the thinking behind how they best do that is really a focus for right now. What about the brokers? Have they got a big role to play here? Because obviously, can you imagine a situation where every insurer has got an ESG proposal form or a requirement, which I'm sure they all will do, but what if they all ask for it in different formats? I mean, obviously, the first thing would be the broker will tell you, well, that doesn't work. Why don't we just agree to ask the same 43 questions and at least have them in standard format so we can all ingest them and we can all move them around? What do you think? I think that's exactly where we have to end up. I think at the moment, some insurers aren't even asking the questions. You may expect that they may want to ask in a couple of years' time, if not next year. Some are asking questions, but those are different questions to what others are asking. And some are being more sophisticated about this and trying to find a way through it and have a more collaborative approach in this space. And I think that in reality, you've got slight challenges about being too collaborative because are you then being anti-competitive in asking for the exact same data and you're working together and there's certain questions that people are asking about that? I think in this space, I don't think there's that much of a risk there, but I'm not a legal expert and I wouldn't want to go down that route. But the core here is what do brokers also feel comfortable expecting from their clients? Because if the situation is insurers ask 500 questions, but they only actually care about two or three of them and they only use two or three of them in their actual underwriting and pricing and technical pricing and modeling, then you're thinking, should the clients have to produce answers to all these questions? And what we're seeing is that clients are being asked for information, which doesn't directly impact what they're doing in terms of price they're likely to get. So should they be asking for that information and should they provide that information? And so there's going to be a little bit of give and take as things settle down, because on the one hand, you have clients who want to give the right information to get the right price and make sure that they can do what they want. But on the other hand, insurers might want some other things for other reasons. So let me give an example. Emissions data. On a purest level, you can't make a direct claim that for a one-year contract, a client with a significantly higher scope one, two, or three greenhouse gas emission is going to be a better or worse risk than someone with a lower emission. You can't make that judgment. 
What you can say is it is an important factor for insurers to consider. It may be very useful for an insurer to understand their overall portfolio, and it's a valuable piece of data that will be used to report into their investors. But it's hard to say that's something that's directly going to impact price today. And so there's going to be a question for many insurers who have not embedded the emissions of their counterparty as part of their underwriting criteria. Is that okay to be asking for that information yet? But I suppose, but as an underwriter, if you don't get that information, you just have to say, well, I'm sorry, if I don't get it, I'm going to have to mark you down as being in the worst category because that's where I'll have to have a default setting. So default is worse, so it will cost you. It will cost you, but that's on the condition that worst actually does cost. So there is a big question right now as to when they get this information, what they're going to do with it. There's no direct idea that insurers who have those who are emitting a lot are necessarily pricing them higher right now. They're considering at this moment in time, I think, what the right thing to do is. Should it be a stick in terms of higher prices, lower capacity, exclusionary in certain instances? Or should it be a carrot where you're, like Beasley are doing with Marsh, actually saying, we're going to expand our capacity for those who actually disclose this information to us? There are different approaches as to what you can do with that. And a lot of that will depend on the senior management's overall strategy and strategic ambition. If you want to say that in 20 years' time, I want to be net zero, or 25 years' time, by 2050, I want to be net zero, then there is a ramification for that in terms of your short-term science-based target, for example. In 2030, I need to have cut my emissions by X percent. Now, if that is an ambition that is publicly disclosed, that the CEO has made, that has senior buy-in in the business, then a person who has a very high emission might impact your ability to hit that target by that date, then there has to be a question as to what you need to do to be able to get to where you want to get to. Does it mean that your weighting in certain carbon-intensive sectors needs to go down, and therefore you need to put more capacity into other sectors? Does it mean that you're going to say no to the top five or six of your clients because they haven't hit their transition targets? But to what extent is that helping the world transition or your own transition? And you have to balance all of these things together and make a strategic decision at a management level. Suppose going back to brass tax again to that person who hasn't done the thing yet, you've mentioned some of these already, the principles of sustainable insurance and the principles for responsible investment. Do you think those are two really good starting places? They should read that and try and implement those first before they get anything else imposed on them. Is that a good starting point? It's a very good starting point. It has a lot of backing behind it. They are principles, however, that require a lot of understanding of what that means for us. How do we ensure that we are thinking about these things and embedding sustainability within underwriting decisions in the right way? What does that mean? So I think that the principles are very important principles. What the most effective implementers of these principles are doing is thinking about those ramifications. What does embedding really mean? How do we ensure that our underwriters are thinking about these things in the right way when they're making their decisions? And to what extent should they only be making those decisions based on risk criteria and to what extent should they be thinking more holistically about the long-term sustainability of a company who they want to be partnering with and these types of discussions that they have to be thinking through are a journey and some will be taking that on and embracing it and some will be screaming and shouting and being pulled along it will just depend on the culture of the business as to how you want to embed this esg which might be a principle of sustainable insurance but may not be how you run your business. And that's where it's about more than just those principles. It's about embedding it within the culture of the insurer to make things better. You mentioned about 
ESG data providers and de facto quasi-rating agency, ESG rating providers, people who give you scores and all this kind of stuff, similar to the sort of ratings we used to, financial strength ratings that we used to. You mentioned how different companies are going about this in different ways. What would be your advice to someone? Do you think you should just find one you like and stick to them and be so wholly monogamous? Or should you go and just sort of get all of them, even though some, of course, frustratingly seem to be contradictory, that they can't quite agree on different things? A lot depends on your resource and your capacity. One of the biggest challenges here is it's all well and good me saying, oh, look, it'd be really good if you look at all the different ratings out there, decide what works best for you, put them all together and recognize that some are better in certain sectors, some are better in others, and then make a judgment and feed that very nicely to your underwriters in a way that makes sense. But realistically, many companies don't have either the resources in terms of people or the resources in terms of budget to be able to do that. So I think that at the minimum, if you want to try and think about this in a way that makes sense, you're likely to be at least taking one of these guys in, one of these rating agencies or sustainability scores in. So it's worth trying to see what coverage they get. That's the big thing that really matters, I think. The reliability is hard to assess between them. What you can say, however, is that some will have much, much better coverage than others and in different sectors. And understanding whether if one ESG rating tool happens to have a coverage of, like, say, 5-10%, and another has 30%, you just have to think about which one's going to be best for you. So there is no one-size-fits-all answer, and it'll depend on your own budget and your resource to be able to deal with these things. But if you can get some sort of rating in and start getting your underwriters to think about what they mean, what does it mean to have a bad rating? What does that mean that you should do on the back of that bad rating? I think that's where the most interesting element is because once you start getting underwriters to think about these things, when the data gets better, you'll be in a really good place to actually move things in the right direction. One of the potential impediments that people talk about, obviously ESG is a board issue. Boards and non-execs worry about all sorts of things. It's their job to worry about. One of those things that they might worry about is the company being accused of greenwashing what about the risk where you disclose a lot of information maybe on your carbon emissions and then it turns out that you totally underestimated them and then now you get a class action, a shareholder class action accusing you of having not told the truth in your annual report last year. What's your advice to boards to how to engage some of the risks, that are, particularly on this governance and disclosure side of things? What should they do? Should they just disclose everything or just not disclose anything until they're 100% certain it's absolutely right? I don't think it's an easy answer either way. You're governing your business. You don't want to be saying things in the public space that's not true. So obviously try and do things that are true, but recognize the limitations of that. Because at least disclose your methodology of how and you got exactly to the number. Right. Right? And, and lay out, for example, there are certain limitations to this. What we have done is we have done X, Y, and Z. We recognize that that cannot be fully perfect. We also recognize that there are going to be certain things that we probably have got wrong in this. But we, what we wanted to do was to disclose this and be transparent as to what you're doing. Also recognizing that now people are thinking about auditing any disclosures they're making in the public space, getting an external person to assess whether that's reasonable. So if you do what is reasonable, I think it is very hard for, I'm not a lawyer, I think it would be very hard for someone to say, you've been lying to us, if you've been as open and transparent on what you're doing and, and, and the limitations to what you're doing as well. So I think that using the legal risk as an excuse not to disclose I think is not the right approach. I think the real approach here is to be transparent as to what these mean and to not be saying things that aren't true. And I think if you do say things that our ambition is to do this, we are working towards achieving this, we have certain plans which we have laid out to get to where we want to get to. If you are open about where you are 
and you are working with the right people along that journey, I think it would be very difficult for someone to say that you're lying. Another thing that boards do is they set remuneration and incentives for executives. Obviously, they've got remuneration committees. Always the best way of making something happen is make sure the CEO is fully incentivized to make this thing happen and probably penalize relatively if they don't do it. So do you think we should get implementation of ESG measures into exec compensation packages? And then it's bound to happen, isn't it? Yes, that is definitely something that many are already considering. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, some of the ESG rating agencies actually have the idea of exec compensation linked to ESG metrics as something that they explicitly ask about, because that actually helps drive their rating. So it's definitely something that people are thinking about. The question as to what that metric should be is the real challenge. Because what you don't want to do is have specific targets which then move you away from where you want to go because you have to hit a specific target. As long as those targets are well thought through, that can be a massively positive incentive. Not just from an exec level, but along performance indicators and across the business. If in everyone's staff evaluation and performance evaluation work, one of the criteria is to what extent are you helping our company become more sustainable? And these types of things that are embedded within performance management across the business, then ESG and sustainability ideas will be embedded. And that's the ultimate goal here. We don't necessarily want to think about sustainability as a side thing that has to be done separately. What we want to be thinking about is how can we ensure that everything that we're doing is being done in a way that is sustainable or ESG positive. This is a really big change. And it's one of these things that's affecting and permeating all through all of society and our industry all at the same time. That often means that there are opportunities. We know that obviously we've seen that a lot of people taking up this opportunity to be ESG data providers and rating agencies and that kind of thing. That's obviously been an obvious business opportunity. And presumably some of the IT to go with it is going to be a big opportunity. Do you think, though, it might change any insurance business models in any way? Very much so. I think that there are going to be certain places within insurance where if you're an underwriter of coal, it's going to be a nervous time. I, I suppose think, your days are numbered, aren't they? I think that would likely be the case, at least in some areas. It's hard to say it's fully numbered because in certain countries of the world, they're going to be working on coal for a long time and they're going to need insurance and there's going to be someone who's going to be providing that insurance. But in many places, that's going to be harder to justify as time goes on. And so there's obviously going to be some change in some of those spaces. And the move, therefore, is on the opportunity side. To what extent can you actually get more transition products? Let's say, I don't know, carbon offset insurance, which is something, an idea which people have been talking about and is likely to be a huge market in the future. I mean, carbon offsets assuming that things go in the way they're likely to go, people are going to be buying a whole amount of them. And what happens if where you're buying it from ends up going bust or there's an issue with what they're doing in terms of planting new trees and you may want to protect yourself by insuring that type of, course, of stuff. Because that's an asset that you're paying for and then if you don't get it, you have to buy another load to replace it because it didn't work out. Exactly right. And you want to have the insurance to cover that potentially. There's going to be spaces in this transition that will need insurance. And the more that you're able to be aware of where those opportunities may lie and be at the forefront or at least flexible enough to take advantage of these opportunities, the better it is. So I think that opportunities will be there in many spaces and some elements will just be a tweak or an understanding. If you've got DNO, for example, there'll have to be an understanding of ESG concerns because it's an issue the director is going to be considering whatever they do. And if they don't think about ESG in the right way, then that's going to be a challenge and a risk for them. So whatever part of insurance you're in, there's going to be a change to the way that you think about certain elements. And some sectors, it's going to be a much bigger change than it is in others. 
You've talked to a huge swathe of our industry over this. Just probably as a last question, how optimistic are you about the industry's ability and awareness to be able to rise to this challenge of ESG without experiencing too much pain and too many shocks? I think the industry is resilient. The industry has talent. The industry has the ability and the opportunity to move things forward. So I'm very, very much more on the optimistic side of things. I think that whilst there are gaps, whilst there are challenges, and whilst there are real resource constraints, I think that the people who I've spoken to have not been really of the sort that they just want to do the absolute minimum tick a box. There's been this move from the absolute minimalist approach to one that really recognizes this is where our industry is. This is where our industry is going. We need to take this seriously. And I think once that acknowledgement, once that light bulb has been lit, I think that really the opportunity is there that the industry is in a really good place to take this forward and to make the right decisions for them and for the world as a whole. So someone's listening to this, what should they do next? And obviously you're the head of ESG, so they should talk to you first, right? Yeah, please reach out. I mean, Oxford Partners, if you look for us online, if you want to just email me directly, that would be great. My email's available, embarrassy at oxfordpartners.com if you'd like, but generally just get in touch with us. We're very happy, very open to discuss your journey, where you are on that journey and what you might want to do. Well, I'll make sure I put all those contacts and of course a link to this really interesting Bermuda ESG report you've just done on the notes of the podcast, but it only remains for me to thank you. Thank you so much. And it's been really fascinating. There's a huge amount of work obviously ahead. So we'll be talking about this, I think for many years to come. I think so too. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting, helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models, designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market, and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.